Welcome to COVID Conversations, Life in a Time of Corona. This is a podcast from the Ohio State University's Center for Folklore Studies. In it, we hear from artists, scholars, and humanities professionals in Ohio in conversation with their counterparts elsewhere in the world about how their work, their thinking, and their creativity has been affected and informed by the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Rachel Hopkin. I'm a folklorist and radio producer based in Dublin, Ohio, and I'm speaking to you on Wednesday, the 7th of July of 2021. And today I have two composers and sound artists as my guests. Brian Harnetti is an interdisciplinary artist and composer who uses sound and listening to foster social change. Rooted in socially engaged art, his work blends performance and recording, installation and writing. Brian lives in Columbus, Ohio. Paevi Takala works as a composer, musician, and sound designer, as well as a documentary film director. She's also a professor at the Sibelius Academy in Helsinki, Finland, where she lives. Brian and Paevi, I'm so thrilled to have you both with me, even if only virtually, for this COVID conversation. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. We're now, gosh, it's like a year and a half or a year and a third or something like that since the whole corona thing descended on us, depending on when you date that from. How are you both doing at this particular stage, Brian? I'm doing well. I had already been working remotely with other musicians on projects. And so this felt, um, I mean, aside from the terror of the, the pandemic, my working life was very similar. I exchanged recordings with friends from near and far and kept up communications and contacts that way. Okay. Paivi, what about you? I'm doing fine at the moment. Uh, my work has been influenced quite a lot by the pandemic in the sense that uh, I had to change all my teaching to remote teaching. And uh, also there were a lot of plans for performances that uh, needed to be frozen. And then I had to reconfigure a lot of things. But uh, yeah, I could say that everything's fine at the moment. And although you live in Helsinki, you're not actually in Helsinki at the moment, are you? You're in the countryside a few hours north of Helsinki. What's the place like where you're tuning in from? I have a beautiful lake on three sides. I'm in a little peninsula and it's warm, nice, sunny. My family comes and goes to this place. Uh, This is something I've spent my childhood summers in. So I'm in a very beautiful place. Wonderful. So I'm curious to know how you first both kind of understood that COVID was going to be something that affected everything pretty much. And also as composers and sound artists, were you very much aware of the sound of the incipient pandemic? That seems kind of a strange question, but I'm wondering how people who are so attuned to the oral landscape take in such things. The first and most noticeable thing was a kind of forced solitude. I had already been working on projects dealing with solitude and what that might mean as a contemplative practice, for example, but having it sort of forced on you was a different thing entirely. And so I feel like it was a test and it sort of brought some of those skills to bear about working by yourself, paying attention to silence and learning how to navigate the loneliness that might be associated with that through listening and sound. It reveals a lot. It revealed just how important it is to continue working on these projects and have something to hold on to. And then it was possible, 
you know, to sort of navigate this forced solitude of the pandemic, maybe in a more healthy way, <laughs> and to use the idea of silence and listening as a skill to continue developing. So did you notice your neighborhood becoming much more silent or your household becoming much more silent? I'm not quite sure of your living arrangement, but was it suddenly there was no noise in the house or was there more noise because there was more people in the house or how did that pan out? (laughs) Uh, It definitely got louder. My wife and son were with me here in our house. We all found various corners to hide in (laughs) and do our work. And then You know, I also became the de facto teacher for our son and helped him through his virtual classes. So it broke up a lot of my working habits and patterns. And so, yeah, on one hand, I'm talking about forced solitude, but on the other hand, there weren't these long stretches of time to concentrate, which is a weird combination of things because of the needs of my family. Right. So instead of getting your social life outside of the house, it suddenly closed down to just your family and within the house. Mm -hmm. Pivy, what about you? Do you remember when you first thought, "Uh uh-oh, something bad's happening? Assuming that is how you thought about it. Well, that feeling came sort of slowly. But for me, with the living arrangement, it was interesting that uh, two weeks before everything closed down, I had just moved together temporarily with two friends to a huge, huge apartment in a lovely part of Helsinki. And uh, the original idea would be to, you know, be abroad, come back, uh, go commute back and forth, uh, have these residencies here and there, and then everything closed down. And suddenly we were three women looking at each other across the dining table and decided that this is it. We have to make the best of it. We all worked from home. So it was a question, of course, like Brian was talking, the negotiating the space and uh, the sounds. One of my flatmates, she is running a big uh, art uh, organization. So somebody's always having a Zoom meeting somewhere. <laughs> and that, that was definitely big difference with the sound. And then outside, everything very, very quiet. I started doing morning walks very early in the morning and found myself walking to the center of Helsinki. And then I saw the building where the government works and I looked at some of the black cars driving in and out and thinking that, you know, are they taking care of us? (laughs) How are they dealing with all this? And they did quite well, fortunately. Oh, good, good. So what were you both working on when things started to close down? Pivy, tell us about some of the things that you were occupying your professional time with. I was in the middle of doing an audiovisual installation called Garden Memories and interviewing and talking with people who have come to Finland as refugees and who have lost the gardens of their countries, the kind of landscape or the nature. So it was very social work, social issues, and some of the people we're dealing with are quite vulnerable in their situation and suddenly we couldn't see them anymore so we had to freeze the whole project because it's very fragile as it is without covid people are hesitant opening up okay so this is an interview based project right 
Uh, this also uh, sounds and singing, but it's about the people, how they remember the bird songs, how they remember the sounds. So I try to locate sounds from their home countries and then sort of create this kind of memories. And anyway, that whole project is, has been now frozen for a year and a half, and I hope to continue. Did you think about trying to pivot it into some kind of virtual realm of doing it like we're recording this remotely obviously the sound quality is not as one would wish for is that what one of the things that put you off trying to pivot into a more remotely recorded realm or is it also because you wanted to be able to interact with these people face to face exactly I would need to communicate straight with them because these are people you have to gain the trust first and then also they don't necessarily have the technology available so that was out of the question so that was something a bit hard to understand that I cannot work on that now but then of course I had to think of other projects but that's definitely something that was about to be a very intensive period in the spring 2020 that we had a lot of shooting and recordings to be done shooting so you were filming this as well right yes how did you come up with this project? It sounds fascinating. I like to work sort of in groups with uh, collective work and two friends of mine that we share the uh, workroom with. One of them works with uh, refugees and we started thinking of the different ways that uh, refugees are presented in the media, what kind of voice are they given and we thought that maybe this would be something that would somehow connect these different people, that they would be able to talk about something that's very important to them, that's very close to their hearts. And uh, yes. And gosh, I've been just thinking about during this past year, it's bad enough not to have your garden, but I think people's gardens have been a refuge if they were fortunate enough to have them in many ways during this year. And so I can imagine it's even harder for them not to have had their gardens. Well, some of them have uh, gardens in Finland, uh, and then the lovely discussion, of course, is what is the soil like? You know, you get very concrete, so there's different descriptions of soil and rain, and these are things, especially the rain that I was trying to capture with the sounds. Oh, yeah, of course, because it uh, sounds so different in different places. Yes. Exactly, yes. Brian, tell me a little bit about what you were working on at the time that everything shut down and, and were you able to continue with it or did you have to do something else? Well, first, I just I love the idea of thinking about the soil <laughs> and attaching it to senses of place. And even if you are dealing with soil from where you are, it might make you imagine about the soil from where you are from and might be two very different places. I feel like the work that I do taps into that same idea of discovering senses of place. The work that I do moves in a couple of different directions. One of the projects that I've been doing long term was a, a listening project in Appalachian, Ohio, with local communities there. And while that temporarily stopped, I was able to take a lot of those ideas about listening, place, history, archives, and sound and then apply them to other places here in Ohio. And what I found was that the pandemic sort of encouraged a sense of localness because we were all essentially stuck wherever we are. And that played very nicely into the ideas that I've been working on for the past couple of decades. 
So I was able to do a year-long project at Kenyon College, which is in a small little village called Gambier, taking students and faculty members and community members into the woods for walks. It could be socially distanced. It was silent. (laughs) It was like the perfect pandemic activity and using listening that way to help sort of almost alleviate some of the serious anxiety that was happening, you know, amongst both the students and faculty there about the pandemic. So that was one very actually positive outcome that came out of it. And then ironically, I had been working on a long-term project about the 20th century writer and Cistercian monk named Thomas Merton, who lived for many years in Kentucky. I had been focusing on some archival recordings that he made and making an album and music project around that. So it actually formed a strange parallel or mirror into these two worlds where, you know, Merton is speaking into a tape recorder in solitude in his hermitage, and I'm sitting in solitude listening to these recordings and responding to it with my own voice. That actually was another way that I found that there was a almost a a sense of depth and, and uh, positiveness that came out of, of those experiences. It's so interesting hearing you both talk about this. I mean, it seems that the silence, how you engage with it seems to be so kind of crucial to one's mental health because sometimes the silence just seems, it's, you know, as a, it's, it's a bit of a cliche, but to say it's deafening. For example, I find that when I need to concentrate on some work, I often go to a cafe so that I've got hubbub noise around me, which tunes out all the chatter within my own head. And that's one thing that I found difficult during the pandemic was not having those places to go to. So the thoughts inside my head became louder and not at all helpful most of the time. Do you have any tips for engaging with the silence? Brian, I come back to you since you've obviously studied this, particularly with reference to Thomas Merton. Well, I think what you're describing is that when you go to a cafe, it allows you to not let an internal voice take over too much. You know, it gives you an outlet, a way to have a secondary focus that frees up some space in your mind. And I mean, I think that for me, I think listening does that where regardless of where I am, inside or outside, if I spend time just listening, essentially using sound as a way to pay attention to where you are and to do so without any kind of judgment or whatever, it makes me feel a little bit better (laughs) and opens up a space where I can you know, do work or even a sense of, you know, healing or something like that. So I can identify with what you're saying. And so I think I've been using it that way as a almost a kind of mindfulness or something like that. That's the word that was occurring to me. Pivy, what about you? Did you, how was your, how did you, how did you like the silence? (laughs) Uh, First of all, I have to say thank you, Brian, for understanding the, the soil part. It's good to hear that it resonates And also what you said about how you were able to turn something you worked on to a new direction that actually when I talked about this uh, different rains, then I realized that actually, you know, that's something I could turn my focus into is the the rain around me. And I started uh, recording sort of four channel rain (laughs) situations. Unfortunately, now we've had six weeks of uh, total dryness, <laughs> very <laughs> so, and no COVID, but <laughs> another force of nature is again interfering with my artistic ideas. <laughs> so I have to find new ways. But uh, 
you know, Finland is a fairly quiet country, so that it's quiet around me, it's not a new thing. And But I do realize that when we were in the spring 2020, very much inside, we did uh, start this exercise, like uh, meditative uh, kind of mindfulness exercises to to be able to accept the place we were in and the situation we were in. And I think that helped me a lot. Also, another good thing, we started uh, winter swimming in the last this winter. Every morning, because I live by the sea, we took a dip in the cold water. And it's like, I am here. This is another day. We start with this. And uh, so if you, if you have cold water... <laughs> I've heard that's amazing for your health, but it sounds awful. <laughs> I love it, but uh, it's something you cannot really recommend to anybody who doesn't like cold water. <laughs> Brian, did you have any kind of physical activities that you took up? Yeah, I mean, the sort of long-term projects that I've been doing are around this idea of forest listening. It's sort of cobbled together from, you know, other artists and composers' work. We do sound walks in these small rural communities. I mean, it starts with the sort of John Cage concept of there is no such thing as silence and listening that way. And then the uh, composer Pauline Oliveros was very well known for listening and, and her term was deep listening. And then other composers like Anna Lockwood really helped bring about the idea of a sound walk where you are taking a walk either in a rural or urban environment, and you're using the sense of listening to guide you on the walk, and it's done in silence. So for me, I was bringing those pieces together with rural Appalachian communities and spending time walking in the forest, then sitting with each other in silence. And then I would add archival recordings of previous generation people that lived and worked in those very same places, and that had almost like a haunting or ghost-like effect, but also gave a sense of time of past and present bleeding together and hearing the archival voices amongst the contemporary soundscapes also had a really interesting effect. And then after that, we would have a kind of community discussion over issues such as land use, how might the land be used in the future, and over the larger issues of extraction hydraulic fracturing and coal mining that takes place in the region, and also labor issues because there's a long, uh, very rich labor tradition in the region. That sounds amazing. How do people find these their way onto these listening walks? They sound incredible. <laughs> I want to come on one. <laughs> well, very slowly. I think Ivy alluded to it earlier where there needs to be, if you're working with any sort of community, there needs to be a sense of trust. And the way that I've developed that is over a long period of time. So I've been working in these towns for over a decade now. I also have some family roots there so that even though I'm an outsider, I have like an introduction card <laughs> to meet people. And then, you know, returning over a long period of time. So I was first a student there doing ethnographic work. Then I volunteered as an AmeriCorps member doing volunteer work. So there was a sense of giving and receiving at the same time. And then I've stayed on working for nonprofit organizations there too. This is all to say that, you know, slowly I've built up trust with community members and then convinced them to do a pretty silly thing, which is to walk, you know, <laughs> in silence together and do listening projects. 
and that's that's how I've done it. And slowly, it's expanded to include students or people from larger cities that might be nearby. But at its heart, the project really is by and for these local community members as a way to redefine the future that they they might have and then to understand the past in a new way. And the area that you're doing this in, you mentioned earlier the village where Kenyon College is located, but you're mostly working in southeast Ohio, right, in the Appalachian region. Yeah, that's correct. So about a third of the state is part of Appalachia. This has a lot of extraction that's taken place over the past 200 years, and it has a very old labor story. And this town where I work mostly, Shawnee, and the town next door called New Straitsville, this is where the United Mine Workers was secretly formed, for example. So it has a a really rich history, a long history of extraction and then environmental degradation, but then also a long history of recovery. The Wayne National Forest was sort of designated in the 1930s as a Franklin Delano Roosevelt New Deal program. And since then, the trees have come back, you know, trees that were all clear cut. And so even though it's not an old growth forest, its trees are now 80 or 85 years old. So there's a lot of complex stories that are taking place there all at once. And what kind of reactions do you get from the participants in these listening walks, especially in this particular region you're talking about? By and large, they're very positive. I mean, when I first started, you know, I was putting up signs and trying to attract people that way and and nobody came. (laughs) (laughs) So what I did to change that was to start to meet people on their own terms. For example, I would take a sound walk with a turkey hunter. And this isn't ironic at all. It's, it's They are excellent listeners. So this hunter was walking around with his shotgun <laughs> and I had my shotgun microphone and we were there in the sort of pre-dawn chorus of, of birds and animals. And it was pretty amazing. You know, it's also, I see people like that as kind of unusual allies. Stereotypically, you know, hunters might be broadly more conservative than my own political viewpoints. But there's also a great sense of loving public lands and wanting to protect those public lands and forests. So there was a way that we could sort of connect over the land itself and have a shared sense of pride in that. It sounds lovely. And I I think this, uh, you know, we so often talk about having a different point of view and this is a different point of listening that you are sort of attuning to when somebody is listening as a turkey hunter or whatever you know that that um, it's it's a true like uh, ethnography <laughs> of the ear it does come from those methods and methodologies at least in part and and taking the musical listening of cage and oliveros for example and applying it to historical or cultural or social contexts. It really sounds profound. And I mean, I think as it's been so much discussed, America and a lot of other countries are in a very divisive state at the moment. And we kind of pay lip service to listening to one another and hearing each other's viewpoints. But it seems like you're taking it into a completely different realm, one that kind of transcends. Yeah, well, I'm going to listen to you for a little bit, but then I want to tell you what I think, you know. Yeah. And I have to say, I mean, it's a very long, slow process. I've essentially committed to coming back again and again, instead of moving from place to place or doing a a workshop here and there. It's a different experience when you come back again and again. And also, I'm not always sure it's successful. I mean, it's, it's, um, 
it can be very difficult at times. And I don't know if there's a way to measure actual social change, for example, but I think that there's something there to help continue to build some kind of trust or something like that with between community members and myself, but then also how can the community members use some of these listening skills to change their own futures and the future of those places. But it's interesting that, uh, Brian, you earlier mentioned the locality that we sort of maybe coming to understand the meaning of locality during the pandemic. And I think that in my music making, you know, it started with uh, the three women, you know, we just because we needed some activity, we started to sing together. And now even this summer when we still cannot have concerts or dances, I had my whole family here in the summer place and you know we celebrate the midsummer it's an old ritual and different <laughs> fires are involved but anyway I had an accordion here and uh, and suddenly uh, we had a dance in the middle of the night and then there were people who came with canoes and boats and uh, sort of spontaneously stopped there by my place my <laughs> this summer place and And it became a little concert, a spontaneous concert. And somehow to concentrate on something that is in a way smaller, but uh, that has lots of possibilities to be deeper in some sense. That's what attracts me to the situations at the moment. Pivy, you said that you weren't able to continue working on the project with the refugees with the gardens. So were you able to find another project to work on that was informed by the pandemic? In a way, yes, I did in uh, that I started writing about sounds and um, then I ended up doing some kind of uh, audio essay for the radio. I tapped into my childhood sounds, how I <laughs> remembered them and uh, music. And it, so it was about what kind of sounds we remember, because writing is something I I like to do. And now I finally had plenty of time for that. So this came out from the radio last uh, winter. Can you talk about any particular sounds that remain from your childhood? There was a broken toilet. Water was dropping and it made different pitches, you know, on a blop, 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 blop <laughs> sounds. And uh, I used to close myself in this particular toilet and just sit on the floor and listen to it. And it was always ended with, you know, we were plenty of people in in the family, somebody was banging the door and asking, what are you doing there? And I could never tell anybody. Now I came out publicly <laughs> and confessed that this was my sound memory from my early childhood. That reminds me of something I heard in a, a BBC radio series. It's called Shortcuts and it's these short sound documentaries. But there was a piece about... I can't remember the details, but it was something to do with a man who I think had separated from his lover and he was very sad about this. And all the time that his lover was living with him, the toilet wasn't fixed. There was something wrong with it. So it made a particularly strange noise. And when she left, he got it fixed. But then he wanted the sound to come back because he missed her. And so he got a plumber in. <laughs> you could hear this plumber going, what, you want me to try and make this sound come back? It was hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> See, there's lots of sound <laughs> memories. Are there any particular sounds that you think will stand out to you from this particular period, pandemic sounds? I guess, you know, I don't know if I've ever sat in so many 
meetings, uh, in Zoom meetings, mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's uh, sort of the beginning of a Zoom meeting when everybody's said, do you hear? Can I can you hear me? <laughs> <laughs> or people forgetting their microphones on and off and funny things happening. As sounds as such, um, very personal things, of course, that I, I started playing piano every day. So for me, the sound of piano is uh, became the <laughs> sort of the soundtrack of the pandemic and I sort of got music back into my life music in a sort of personal sense just play for enjoyment that's something I definitely got back to my life. Brian what about you have there been any standout sounds from this period? Well I have to say I too I have done this writing exercise during the pandemic <laughs> of imagining the sounds of your childhood and 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 how they affect you. You're kidding. Yeah, there's this term anamnesis which is a a sound from the past that you hear again in the present and then it evokes like a very strong memory. It's not my term. I pulled it from a book called Sonic Effects, I think. But I I'm really interested in this and how past can sort of time travel suddenly through sound <laughs> in the present moment. So I was trying to think through those things. And then I also was trying to think about the moments, you know, that I remembered the most as a child and what was I doing and was I listening? And I just thought I would say that because I, I really, <laughs> I was like, wow, I did that too. That's must be like a, a pandemic reaction, right? That we look inward and we we listen inward too. Oh, well I think that's I mean I think that's a, a good way to react to it. I'm not sure that well I'm not sure that I did but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but carry on, sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you. But yeah, as for particular pandemic sounds, I I don't know if I have anything that's I mean it feels like the neighborhood sounds very similar. You know, the trains ran less for a long time. What I notice now is everything picking up so that the sounds of traffic and trains and airplanes overhead have all so greatly increased that they seem louder than they were pre-pandemic. Maybe it's my senses are a little askew because of that. Well, going back to your the, the writing that you were doing, can you tell us maybe one of the sounds that particularly stuck out for you from your childhood? Oh, yeah. My grandfather had an apple orchard. And so a lot of my earliest memories are associated with being there and he had a very particular apple sorting machine that you know was probably from the 1930s <laughs> uh, and apples would move along this conveyor belt and then according to their size they would fall into different buckets they'd fall through the belt that particular sound associated with the sort of bees that were always present in the cider room and almost like sickly sweat smell. So it's not only sound, but they all sort of come together, conspire to have this very strong memory. The work that you were doing on this Thomas Merton project, do you think that's been changed because of the pandemic? Well, it's certainly changed me. I think that it, it changed the lenses that I understood it through. I mean, I'd read Merton since I was a teenager and, and had been working on this particular project since 2017. So it had some very deep roots already. But to filter it through the, the twin lenses of the pandemic and the sort of racial protests and seeing it that way certainly changed it for me. 
there's a sort of back and forth between solitude and action that's present there. And it's exactly the way that Merton wrote so that he spoke out against these issues, for example, but then was doing so from a place of being alone and solitude. And that movement and tension that's back and forth between those two poles, solitude on one hand and social action on the other, is what I'm really interested in. And I think that listening can do that really well. Pivey, did you hear much about the racial tensions erupting in the US last year in specific? Absolutely, yes. And we were following very intensely also everything, yes. Were there issues that you could see parallels between? Not so much uh, racial issues. I'm sure there were a few cases that uh, resonated, but uh, not publicly in that sense. But if I think of uh, sort of social issues, this takes us maybe to another direction, but... uh, it has to do with our work is is that in Finland uh, all the arts are very much uh, government uh, funded, not so much privately. And now with the pandemic, the legislation we have for situations like this turned out that it's much more difficult to close down uh, private enterprises because they are very very well protected. But whereas arts, concerts, uh, art exhibitions, museums, theaters, movie theaters were considered as part of the art scene, those uh, which is very much publicly funded, they were able to close down those uh, for very long periods, which meant that a lot of artists, of course, got into deep trouble. And that sort of raised a very, very interesting discussion, which is still ongoing. And we had big uh, demonstrations is what is the role of arts in the society? And why is it so easy to say, okay, we can keep the restaurants open. But, you know, if there's a musician playing in the restaurant, oh, you have to close it because it's (laughs) different legislation. Okay, so did I get understand this right? Because restaurants are privately owned, they could stay open, whereas theatres and concert halls had to shut down because the government had more control over those. Yes, they fall under different legislation, so it's much easier to close down a theatre or a concert hall than a restaurant. Right, but then it changes again if a musician is in the restaurant because the musician falls under different legislation. Yes, <laughs> It's very absurd and very strange, and yet uh, it somehow reflects uh, something in the thinking of the society at the moment. So what's the situation now in Finland? We're speaking in early July 2021. What's kind of going on? Is there any kind of uh, restrictions in place? How's the vaccination program rolling out? Vaccination program is rolling out uh, quite well. About uh, 70% have gotten the first, uh, maybe 45, 50% have gotten the second vaccination. But uh, unfortunately, there was the European uh, uh, the football games. Some of those games were played in St. Petersburg, Russia, and uh, some people went there to watch their team, the Finnish team was playing, and uh, came back with this Delta variant. Uh, and again, we have to you know, be very careful. It seemed in the beginning of June that all oh, things are getting better, and now we are on our toes that what is going to happen, which direction is this turning? And Brian, we're in the same state, but do you want to give me your impression on, on how things are here in Ohio? I think here it feels 
like uh, it's back to normal almost. Most people aren't wearing masks anymore. I still follow <laughs> this idea of that I'm in a really crowded place that I'm going to put on my mask, but sometimes I feel like I'm the only person doing that. <laughs> it's a very surreal feeling. I mean, we are all vaccinated here in our household. And so we feel we have like this layer of protection and yet we're not exactly sure how to be. Okay. Okay. Um, I've asked most of the questions that I wanted to ask. Do you have anything you want to ask each other? Yes. Uh, Brian, it's been very interesting hearing about your work, but what is your next <laughs> project? What do you, how are you seeing your future? I see these different strains of work. One strain is a more of a musical approach um, with, you know, creating albums and working with audio archives. And the second strain has more to do with this sort of community-based, socially engaged art. And they overlap in a lot of really interesting ways. I mean, I'm doing another project in the Wayne National Forest, which is largely field recording based and is focused on the idea of healing and uh, recovery, um, both sort of environmentally and culturally. Again, the sort of Appalachian southeastern part of Ohio has had a century of, of decline and environmental degradation, and it's slowly changing with non-extractive businesses popping up more and more. And so the idea is, you know, what is the future like um, for Appalachia and what does that sound like? <laughs> um, so again, using sound in a sort of more more cultural way. And there's this quote from the author Wendell Berry that I like very much that he says, an art that heals and protects its subject, and by its subject he meant the land where he lives, is a type of a geography of scars. And that phrase, a geography of scars, makes a lot of sense to me, where there's this sense of, of healing, but the healing also produces scars. And are those things audible and visible? And how might they form you know, material for a project. It makes me wonder about the geography of scars of the recovery from the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Pivy, what about you? I do hope to continue at some point the Garden Memories project, and eventually I'm sure at some point we will. Meanwhile, I have this recording of the rain. It started out when I got stuck in a, in a car. It, the rain was so heavy that uh, I had to stop the car by the road. And I turned my Zoom on and suddenly listening to the recording, I thought, this is a wonderful. <laughs> I'm inside the rain. And so I started, uh, I've been here also in the countryside a couple of times. There's been beautiful rain when the chimney, which has sort of a metal top, starts to resonate with the raindrops and I've been imagining this project of being inside the rain and I'm in a multi-channel projection hopefully that's something I can continue doing then uh, we started a project with my colleagues which is sort of uh, some kind of reaction to the pandemic you know I work in the center for music and technology and there's all kinds of electroacoustic musicians in my in my department 
And normally, before the pandemic, I think our concerts used to be this huge paraphernalia of equipment, <laughs> speakers, and suddenly also influenced maybe by the solitude of everything and working by ourselves, we started imagining this kind of electroacoustic music in the parks, but so that each musician is provides the energy and technology needed for herself or himself so that uh, my colleagues built these funny little machines which work with solar energy and make very small sounds they are not big sounds so we started improvising in parks with this equipment and that's something we st- we are going to development when we get get back together and the idea is to keep it small also the ecological thinking with the, with the sound equipment is part of it. Yeah, there's a there's a sense of scale there that's changed, right? I like that very much. Exactly. Exactly. Yes, which is why I enjoy it so much. Yes. Yeah, I love it. It's interesting. A couple of um episodes back I was speaking with two visual artists and they were talking about how their sense of their world had, had narrowed down to their their homes because they were having to stay in their homes and they had to renegotiate their relationship within their homes and and do different things in their homes and it's it's just it's so amazing how you artists think <laughs> and view things in a way that I think not all of us do. It's um it's really impressive. It's been really amazing listening to you both reflect on listening. I don't know, it's it's been very peaceful and it's opened up something in my own head. So I really want to thank you both for that. Thank you. And thank you for uh, introducing me to Brian. It's been great to hear about your work and I'll be following it, definitely. Yes, same. I've really enjoyed listening to you too. So I just want to thank you both so much, my two guests, um, Brian Harnetti in Columbus, Ohio and Paivi Takala in Finland. COVID Conversations Life in the Time of Corona is a production of the Center for Folklore Studies at The Ohio State University. It's funded by the university's Global Arts and Humanities Discovery Theme Grant Initiative. So many people have been instrumental in making this series happen, and I can't name them all, but I would like to express special thanks to Katie Borland, Paul Kottheimer, Cassie Paston, and Nick Spitulski. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and thank you for listening.